is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. I am here with Danielle King sitting across from me. Hi. And we have Donald uh, Skyping in for this conversation. Say hello, Donald. Hello. So we are in part two of our discussion of the mission statement for, you need to help me out with this name. The Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Yes. Mouthful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it, it really is. This is part two of this series. If you have not listened to part one yet, do go ahead and go back and listen to that so you'll be caught up. We're also doing this several weeks after our first recorded episode, so hopefully <laughs> hopefully we're on the right one, I think we are, on the right point. So we're doing this as kind of a follow-up to the Nashville Statement series that I did with Matt Langston. This is the organization that released the Nashville Statement, the Nashville Statement essentially being a big fuck you to the LGBT community. And so now we're kind of pulling the lens back some and looking at this organization's view on men and women. Now, before we get into it any further, I I feel like I need to say that this is important because organizations like these really do inform cultural discourse, inform the church culture in which a lot of people, men, women, and LGBT people grow up and are shaped by. And so this is important stuff and it needs to be examined. So with that, shall we move on? Let's. All right. I think, I feel like we need to have like an anger meter right here <laughs> that we can watch. What is your anger level? <laughs> what <now>? is, <laughs> hmm. As I, we like to call Danielle, Danielle with a Y-E-L-L around the house because she's very good at getting all worked up and getting very loud. So If she blows out the mic, I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. (laughs) You've been warned. Exactly. So I believe we are at point four of their mission statement. So so first of all, they're they're going through all the what's at stake with an egalitarian view of the world. What is at stake if we let go of this? hierarchical men over women gender complementarianism that they believe is not just biblical, but also the litmus test for orthodoxy. We already have a fear mongering right off the bat. Oh, absolutely. This is at stake. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So we are moving on with what is at stake. Number four, our worship is at stake. Increasingly, members of the evangelical community in the name of gender equality are advocating calling God mother as often as we call him father. God has named himself and for us to make changes to his self-revelation not only undermines the written word, but also undermines God's authority in our lives. I, I see Danielle rubbing her forehead i am i'm just i'm just gonna let the two of you take this one up oh my goodness let's take let's take the last point first if calling god mother undermines his authority i'd hate to find out how you treat your mother good gracious good gracious did you not obey her growing up as the ten commandments requires like if mother if your mother doesn't have authority then i don't know who does you had a strange strange childhood because i know i did what my mother told me to do didn't exactly. you exactly anyway yeah no the last point first if calling god mother diminishes his authority your poor mama 
your poor good lord your poor mother that's such a dig and such a subtle dig thrown in kind of offhandedly at the end there almost exactly mm, yeah Tor- mm-hmm. i mean just right off the bat they don't even make any any qualms about saying you know if you if the feminine is that it will undermine is, god's authority to call him mother um yeah. <laughs> as, as far as i can tell the ten commandments tells us to honor our father and mother and in uh, ephesians it tells us to obey our parents not just our fathers the bible typically goes pretty uh goes pretty both parent when telling children to to you know to honor and listen to their parents so not sh- quite sure where that's coming from and need we re- point out god listened to his own mama <laughs> Well, there you go, too. We have the example of Jesus who listened to his mother. I, well, their argument is, what, that God, quote, they say they say that uh, evangelical community, gender equality, advocating calling God mother as often as we call him father. Now, I wonder if, I wonder if they would be okay with it if we, you know, called him mother a certain percentage of the time. And here's my point. They're ignoring, excuse me, the glimpses that we get in scripture of a God beyond the patriarchal and heteronormative societies to whom he was revealing himself. Exactly. For example, at one point, God is called El Shaddai. That literally means uh, God of the breasts. And the, the image is of him suckling Israel like a mother nurses her child. So are we to get rid of that image of God simply because, oh, well, men, men best, men best, women second, can't do that. By ignoring those feminine revelations of God, they're undermining the written word of Scripture by totally ignoring whole swaths of it. Well, and let's go back to this idea. God, it's spoken of in Scripture, uh, the glory of God, and the word used is Shekinah. That's a feminine word. That is a feminine aspect or attribute of God. Moreover, both men and women are supposedly created in the image of God. So God, and, and that's the thing, the Bible makes clear God is spirit. He is not a, a an old bearded man in the sky he is spirit he transcends gender it's not that he is you know b- below gender i don't know how to put that but he transcends gender he is not male or female he is god he is all he is he is god that's all like we can't say god is a man god is a woman jesus christ when he came to earth you know incarnate was became incarnate as as a male human but that does not mean that the entirety of god is male was it c.s lewis who said god is male and female and more I think so. And, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact quote. And I really want to find it, but I really love that description of God. Yeah. And so he transcends gender; he is not bound by it. Several things come out to me in this point. One is that, as the point that Danielle was making, that there are these glimpses of a God beyond the cultural framework mm-hmm. of God in Scripture. You know, and I think at a face value of Scripture, it's pretty obvious that the culture and maybe even the text itself is predominantly patriarchal and heteronormative. Mm-hmm. And I would even go so far as to say homophobic yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And But to me, that is a surface reading of the scripture. And when you kind of sink beneath that Cult, the, the cultural framework in which it was written, you start to see these startling glimpses of a very progressive God, of a very mm-hmm. all-encompassing God. For example, we have the book of 
Galatians, which says there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et Gen- Jew or Gentile. Jew yeah. or Gentile, mm-hmm. all are one in God. That is an incredibly... That did not come from a Greco-Roman or no. Jewish culture. No, is, it did is not. our point. Like that, exactly. That was and, counter to those and, cultures. And so there are these glimpses, as Danielle says. But I think if you were to just pick up the Bible and just read through it and do a mm-hmm. surface reading, I think people would probably walk away with a very patriarchal understanding Mm -hmm. because that was the culture it was written. The other thing that really comes out to me in this piece is, or in this point, is that what are these people trying to preserve in this statement? And Mm -hmm. I think it is a very powerful ploy that if on some either consciously or unconsciously, if we are trying to preserve structures of power, the best way to do that is to say what God, what their God is and is not. So if you want to preserve power structures in human society, and if you want to make sure women don't have leadership, and if you want mm-hmm. to make sure men stay in a place of power, well, then just say, well, we can't call God female. We can't call the because ultimate that authority. Would dishonor him. That would yeah. dishonor him. Mm-hmm. If we yeah. if we say that God is both male and female, well, then doesn't that jeopardize the social structure that they've created? Doesn't that jeopardize the social structure that human beings have created where women are subservient to men? And so what I see in this, and maybe this is just my very cynical reading of it, I don't think it is, but maybe this is my very cynical reading of it, is that a great way to control people is to control how they see God. Oh, absolutely. Well, oh, I think that last yes. that last sentence says it all. It would take away from God's authority, would undermine it to call him mother. I think that says everything. Yes, yeah, exactly. This is about control and power structures. And then, well, and I guess just one more kind of blanket statement about cultural context and God. God is infinite. We are not, we do not fully comprehend him. We cannot fully comprehend him with our finite human brains. Like we just, we can't. Um, And so any way that God chooses to relate to us is essentially metaphor. He is limiting himself to terms and, and concepts that we can understand. And so if you're going to talk to a patriarchal heteronormative culture about yourself as a being that transcends gender, and you want to say, I will protect you, then yes, you're probably going to call yourself father. If you want to say, I'm going to provide for you and lead you, then yes, the metaphor you're going to choose is father, because that's what those people, you know, equate with those concepts. The point is, it's all metaphor. God is not a mother or a father. He is both and more. So basically what I'm hearing is that not only is this statement kind of engaging in a lot of social control by determining what God is and is not. It's limiting God. It's limiting God. Mm -hmm. It's also, I mean, it's also anthropomorphizing God. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, do you remember the name of that saint? I forget who he was, who who came up with this formulation to describe God. And it was essentially, and I'm going to totally mess this up, (laughs) but it was something like, God is like a father. Hmm. God is not a father. God I, is I'm the familiar com- with yeah. this, but I can't remember who yeah. it was. God, Dang it. God is like a father. God is not a father. God is the completion of fatherhood. Hmm. God is like a mother. God is not a mother. Mm-hmm. God is like the God is the completion of motherhood. This idea that God is that that our human relationships and connections 
are simply metaphors by which we can understand this ultimate reality is an important mystical part of our faith. It's an important mystical tradition in the church. Like people have understood understood this for a very long time. Theologians and you know people of religious vocation have have talked about this for a very long time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, let's move on to part five, in which unless Donald, you had any more thoughts on that? <laughs> Just a couple. Just a okay. Couple. All right. First, I, I want to contrast like we've been doing with. Uh, Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. With, the mission, with the mission statement of a CBE, Christians for Biblical Equality. And again, this is an organization I've been a member of for several, several years. And uh, CBMW, what we're reading now, was formed in direct defiance to this group that I'm a part of. Mm, yeah. So the egalitarians were here first. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> and CBE is Christians for Biblical Equality. Yes, Now, their core values states this, and it goes right to what you were saying. Number four, while the Bible reflects patriarchal culture, the Bible does not teach patriarchy in human relationships. Preach! Exactly. (laughs) So, and here's the thing with culture. You know, God obviously created humankind, so he knows human nature. Sure. So... I feel like when you read the Bible with some historical knowledge of how overly patriarchal the quote-unquote pagan cultures around, you know, the people of God was, that God clearly worked within it, but at the same time, he's always calling them a little bit higher. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like God does this gradually until ultimately, of course, we have the culmination in Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. who was totally and radically different from the patriarchal society. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, and there are many, many examples, we could get into them, of how Jesus treated women in radically progressive ways for the society by which he was surrounded and would have shocked people, really shocked them. Well, and even the Old Testament law, if you read it within that lens, you know, a lot of times we look, especially as feminists, we look at the uh, purity codes for women like on menstruation and stuff is very patriarchal but at the same time it was better than what had come before yeah yeah well i read mm-hmm. yeah and it was a way of protection because yeah. women couldn't deny a man sex at any given time and here's mm-hmm. god saying no there are Same. times when she no, can't there are times you. when you can't yeah mm-hmm. all right well let's move on to part five which says bible translations are at stake oh this will really? be really this will be real fun there are many who are currently advocating for Bible translations that would essentially be gender neutral. These translations in hundreds of places remove the words he, him, his, brother, father, son, and man. Our concern is that in the name of gender equality, the Bible is undermined and the very words of God end up being revised. Okay, here we go. Oh my goodness. So. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Right yeah. off the bat, here, right off the bat here, that is a total gaslighting word. Gender, there is such a thing as gender neutral Bible translations, and yes, they go a little too far. But I agree with that. But this is tip. This is a direct dig at, at CBE, who was a big advocate. If you remember when the the today's New International Version of the Bible came out, the TNIV. Mm. Uh, 
that was known for that. There is a difference. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. There is a difference between a gender-neutral translation and a gender-accurate translation. There you go. Exactly. So what they are talking about here, where they're saying that they're removing words, he, him, brother, father, son, man, in a gender-accurate translation like the TNIV, like the New Living Translation or the New Revised Standard Version, and, of course, the 2011 update of the New International Version. They are doing this in places where the original languages allow them to. So, like the Greek word for man is anthropos, and that is generic. It means mankind or people. I don't think they would argue that when the Bible says mankind, it means only all the men of the human race. You know what I mean? They would say it means humans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And none of these translations, which all of the gender accurate translations are, the, are my preferred translations, and I've, I use several of them. Never once have they changed the gender pronoun for God. Interesting. Ne- yeah. Never ha- never have they called a man a woman or a woman a man. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, when they say they're going to, going to remove brother, it reminds me of, of a psalm where, you know, how good and, and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I assume they don't only want men to live in peace with each other. Like, they want everyone to live in peace with each other. Uh, but at the same time, they probably keep in things like, you know, Reuben was Joseph's brother. And this is a real important point because several Bible translations that are out now that are used especially among young people in the church were created in because of this point right here. So for instance, one of the most popular translations out now is the ESV. Mm-hmm. The English Standard Version. I think that's the one I use. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. That's and, the one I use. And it was created in direct opposition to a gender accurate translation of the Bible. Oh, dear. Mm. So it, what the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is basically the Southern Baptist Convention got together and decided to do their own translation of the Bible, and there you go. Oy. But several of these have been made in direct opposition to this to kind of maintain this patriarchal language where it's unnecessary. So, and again, mm-hmm. they, are, they really like this word undermine. Sure. Yes, they, they do. Really do. I've I've noticed that all of the conservative mm-hmm. organizations use it over and over and over again. Here's the thing. You know, the whole concept of the Reformation was in my one of the big ones was so that the common person could read the Bible in a language they understood. Language changes so much. English has I mean, look at the words we have now that we didn't have 10 years ago. No, I mean t- 15 years ago nobody knew what a podcast was. Exactly. You know, and now it's so, but, and so language changes. And so, yes, years and years ago, we did use the generic masculine for everything. But it would be, it would honestly be more accurate to say humankind or human beings. It is, it is not a mistranslation to transpose mankind to humankind. In the context, that's what that meant. And so that is not actually a mistranslation. If the purpose of the Bible is to, and I believe at least one of the, yes, it's a self-revelation of God, blah, 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 but none of that matters if the Bible cannot be understood. So when you want to keep the Bible in archaic language that nobody uses anymore, or that's going to mean something, take the, well, take the King James Version word Mm. dumb, you know, Mm -hmm. in the King James Version, a dumb person is somebody who can't speak. They're mute. 
Yeah. Now it means stupid. Yes. And that anybody who reads the King James Version now that has never read the Bible before is going to see that word dumb and assume God is talking about a stupid person. So, you know, we don't use masculine generics anymore. So anybody, especially women and girls that come to the Bible for the first time now, and they see all this masculine language, they're going to get the impression, and rightfully so, that the Bible does not talk to them. And that undermines Scripture. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, really, the the refusal to enter current language trends with Scripture, where mankind once meant all humanity, where now mankind actually means just men. The refusal to make that transition is, in fact, another form of control. Well, and I'm not suggesting that we go completely overboard, like where Jesus rebukes the devil. I'm not saying we should translate and say, and God and Jesus said to Satan, "Bye, Felicia." You know, <laughs> yes. no, no. I yeah. would love to see that translation personally. That would be a good trans, oh, like "Bye, God. Felicia." Oh but, man. So this actually brings up a question that I've had. And since it, the, the point in question is about the Bible, I think I, would, I will go ahead and ask it. So the Bible is a huge and complicated and ancient piece of work. And, and we are talking about different views of interpretation of it. And, and I think we and, – and we're talking about – these interpretations of it as if they are objective. And I think that they probably are. You know, you will, for example, El Shaddai is in fact, that name is in fact in scripture. It is in fact feminine. That is a fact. And it is, I think, a fact that the Bible is on a surface reading pretty patriarchal and homophobic. But because it is so huge and so ancient, does it become kind of a Rorschach test onto which we can project all of our values, our culture, in such a way that these battles over, say, homosexuality, feminism, so on, will simply never be resolved because there can be no objective way to come to a final stance or truth. Well, and that's the beauty and the danger of Scripture. God gave it to humans, knowing what we would do with it. Um, You know, you can argue that he also sent the Holy Spirit to help us out. But uh, yeah, no. (laughs) The Holy Spirit seems to be doing a pretty messy job so far. (laughs) Pretty uneven kind of job. No, but it goes back to our argument that God was revealing himself to these very patriarchal, uh, heteronormative people in these these cultures. Um, And so to some degree, I don't think we can get away from that. And I think God knows that. I think God accounts for that. He knows that we're human and he knows that we we are error. We yes. will make mistakes always. This is the big problem in evangelical circles that I understand that I'm that I see is most churches, controversial statement coming from Donald, <laughs> most evangelical Pentecostal charismatic churches, they worship the Bible, they don't worship Jesus. Ooh. Mhm. Ooh. So, you know, the part of the problem with this whole discussion is that we cannot even agree on what the Bible is. Exactly. You know, the whole reason we're having this discussion is because the three of us grew up in a situation where every little thing we did had to be checked 
with the book. Checked and rechecked. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's like checking your it's like checking your math homework. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah is. exactly. It's the uh, the, uh, the teacher's answer book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mean oh god, do you remember those check answers on those Excel sheets? Do you remember those? Y'all went to private school. You don't know what I'm talking no, about. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank God. Those things were horrible. Oh, but uh, but anyway, so we can't agree on what the Bible is and what it's for. You know, do you believe that it's supposed to be like the, remember this from Sunday school, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth? Oh. I do remember that. Uh, you know, so is it supposed to be that rule book, that, that owner's manual for humanity, or is it just God's story thus far? Mm. Right. Mm. That, or, and the whole point, see here, and here's the thing. Okay, I'm getting a little theological here. I see two main differences in worldview. The evangelicals basically will say that we are moving further and further away from God. Mm. And we're, we're deteriorating to the point of apocalypse. Essentially that any change you know, from these, yet from their, from what we're talking about with the biblical manhood and womanhood stuff is moving away from God. But what if, in fact, it's the reverse that because it's like what, and it comes down to what did Jesus really accomplish? If you're going to go by an e- a more Eastern mindset, and I probably take it further than they would, is that the whole order of the cosmos was reversed. Hmm. So instead of us moving toward destruction, we're moving towards the eschaton. Hmm. We're moving toward the ages of ages, the culmination of all things. So that tells me that we are uh, that the things that we're co- that are coming up now, the talks about consent, the talks about uh, inclusion, the talks about inclusivity, about equal rights. That is a forward. We're on a forward progression, not a backward progression. So we are meant to, I think, transcend the things that are in the Bible. Hmm. Because here's the thing: we worship Jesus, not the Bible. Yes. There you go. Hmm. And. So the Bible, in my opinion, this is just me, the Bible's job is to point us to Jesus, and Jesus takes care of the rest. So one of my teachers years ago in in Youth with a Mission said the Bible is meant to lead us outside of the Bible. The Bible is meant to lead us through the scriptures and out of it into life. And if we stay stuck in the Bible, then we're doing it wrong. We are. And so many, and that's what happens. It's called bibliolatry. It's a making an idol out of the scriptures. Ooh. Hmm. Essentially setting it in stone, making a graven image out of the Bible. That's interesting. But that's the exact hmm. opposite of what God wanted to do. What did he say in the Old Testament in the prophecies? He said, I will write the law, the thing that I'm going to do different in the messianic age is instead of the law being written in stone, I'm writing it on people's hearts. Yeah. Hmm. So, you know, we're undermining, we undermine the Bible when we worship it. So here's, I'm going to be devil's advocate for just a minute, because at the end of the book of Revelation, Donald, I'm sure you know what it says, uh, that if, what is it? If anyone changes a jot or tittle of this, of these words, or if anyone adds or takes away, then uh, essentially they'll, they'll be damned. How might you respond to someone who would bring up the end of Revelation as, well, we can't mess with it because then terrible things will happen. Revelation is most likely 
just talking about itself. About the book of that, Revelation. About, yeah. <laughs> because we forget that the Bible as we have it today is a miniature library of thousands of years of material mm-hmm. that's been compiled together. Need we also remind people from a historical point that <laughs> Revelation only made it in to the canon by a hair. It's true. Oh, and by church authority. People love to ignore that one. The <laughs> canon of scripture was compiled by the church, guys, by men, by, by traditions of men. Sorry, I say it that way because that was always upheld as the worst thing you could look at, look to for guidance. Anyway. By the Catholic Church, I no know, less. I, I know, I know. Yeah. But see, the, the, and this is what I see just in evangelicalism, and this is why I believe that ultimately it's not sustainable, because it keeps wanting to pull back. It keeps wanting to go backwards. It's like they're trying to preserve something that was never meant to be preserved. Yeah. I mean, I look at it all, and basically all I see is people who are frightened trying to hold on to what they're familiar with, what they're comfortable with. And I get it. That's a very human impulse, but it's not a divine impulse. Danielle touched on this just a second ago of why they are whole and they being Mm -hmm. the conservative evangelical world are trying to hold on to these old destructive norms. And, you know, you brought up afraid. They are afraid. afraid. Yeah. Let's try to go deeper into that and why this is happening. Why does this statement exist? And why is the evangelical culture holding on to it? I mean, I think I want to start with, I think there's a lot of, and I may come under fire for this, but I think there's a lot of in good faith happening here. If we remember, if we remember how Paul started out, he started out as Saul. And what did Saul do? He killed Christians. Why? Because he was vindictive and just a violent person? No, because he genuinely thought that they were blaspheming. He loved God and he loved the law. He had been taught by Pharisees of Pharisees. He had some of the best, you know, Talmudic Torah education you could come by in the first century. And he loved God. He thought he was doing what God wanted. He thought he was preserving the true faith as this weird cult of Jesus of Nazareth was talking to all these Jewish people and essentially bringing them away from the purity of the law. He thought he was doing what God wanted. And I think there's a lot of that sort of good faith, you know, well, well, this is how it's always been. And so, and this is just what, this is, this is it. This is what God wants, clearly. And that, there's that word, clearly. To me, that means this is what I'm familiar with. This is what I've always heard. Therefore, it must, and, and it gets conflated, I think, for people with what God wants, This is how it's always been. Therefore, it's what God wants. And I I do think there's a lot of good faith happening here where people are frightened genuinely for the for the for their own souls, for the souls of others. And it leads them to 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 think. And you have to you have things are moving. You know, I mentioned earlier about how God clearly through the script. Well, there I go. Clearly, (laughs) maybe not so clearly, but I mentioned how God tended to work very slowly with people to change the culture. And in this day and age, things have happened so quickly that I think people are just almost... Shell-shocked, yeah. Are shell-shocked, mm-hmm. you know. Gay marriage is now the law of the land. That happened almost literally overnight. And, you know, it was... People are just are, are just that. They're shell-shocked. And I think we... 
I don't know what we do about that. I, I feel like we're we did we are ignoring the fact that for a lot of people, their fundamental worldview in a very short amount of time has been completely has been completely blown up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and how dis discombobulating that can be. Oh, it's terrifying. It's straight up terrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is, and just human nature's way of personalizing everything like it mm-hmm. I, I personally don't understand why if you are a married heterosexual person how two men or two women getting married can in any way in any way affect you right right <laughs> but but yeah. just this this human nature's capacity to personalize yeah. Everything that happens. Not and then on top of that we have social media. We have twenty four mm-hmm. hour news. We have we are being bombarded all the time with information that some some of it's true, a lot of it's not. Mm-hmm. Well and that's the other thing is the way in which this cultural change has been accelerated is kind of unprecedented in it human is. history like we're our brains are developed are, are adapting to new technology and you know we as people are exploring these new technologies and the lightning fast way in which information and uh and even just people spouting off their personal opinions can suddenly be heard everywhere and so i think some of the negative effects of simply the technological change have really been affecting the way that this theological debate is going down absolutely Mm -hmm. so i'm going to go on a pretty massive tangent here so warning (laughs) warning tangent warning tangent but i think it's related so hear me out i'm working on another interview and it's currently being edited and it will come out probably the week before this series comes out and it's with the author joseph laycock and he's a sociologist and he wrote a book called dangerous games and i'm sorry but he has a really funny name yeah he has an unfortunate last name but he's a great guy and very smart and it's one of these you know super nerdy topics like this one where i find it riveting but then in editing i'm like no one's going to find this interesting. This is going to be so boring to the public. <laughs> but I but I think it's riveting. And I hope a few people, a few other people do too. But his study focuses on moral panic within culture, the connection between moral panic and role-playing games, hmm. like Dungeons and Dragons. Back in the, like, what, Back late in, 80s, 90s? And it's oh, still, like the satanic panic. The yeah. satanic panic. Mm-hmm. And, and it's still going on. I mean the, the yeah no oh trust are, me I was oh, yeah. I was warned warned and warned yeah. warned and warned okay so there was a chick track about that yeah mm-hmm. so you know for anyone interested in this definitely go listen to that interview with Professor Laycock but essentially what he says kind of the heart of his argument is that evangelicals were really terrified of games like Dungeons and Dragons for several reasons despite the fact that. Dungeons and Dragons was actually created by two Christians who are very rooted in Tolkien-esque mythology. I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. And I so, didn't either. And so the, uh, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax were the two creators of Dungeons and Dragons were actually very, very, very Christian evangelical guys and created a very C.S. Lewis-esque, Tolkien-esque world that has lots of biblical imagery in it, a lot of evangelical concepts of absolute good and evil. So, and yet despite all of that, 
the church was still, the evangelical church was still incredibly threatened by it. And basically what he says is that Dungeons and Dragons was such a vivid world, such a vivid place where people could inhabit that it made religion itself look like something of a game. Oh. Oh, okay. And so people people were terrified of the implications of that on a Mm. very deep and visceral level. If Dungeons and Dragons resembles religion, then is religion a sort of game? Now, he doesn't, Hmm. you know, Professor Laycock doesn't say this to demean religion in any way, but just pointing out that that was the root of the observation I mean, that, the, the un, that was that was the, the root. unstated psychological root, the exactly. underlying fear. Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and how that's really part of the underlying fear. And and so I think where this connects in this current discussion of why are so many people within the evangelical church holding on to obviously retrograde and damaging ideas? Well, we can say obviously. And I guess to, that's uh, fair. to us. <laughs> yeah. I mean to me, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Why is that? And why is there the fear? And I think that on a conscious level, it is about salvation. Like you said, it it is about the salvation of others and their own salvation and the genuine fear that if these parts of their faith fall apart, then truly all is lost. But I think it might also be deeper than that, which is what if I'm just wrong? Mm-hmm. What if, you know, when we start looking at all of these other ideological worlds in the same way that the evangelicals in the 80s and 90s looked at Dungeons and Dragons and realized here is this other fantasy world and engagement in this world looks like our own religion. What does that say about us? In a similar way, being confronted with other worlds of theology, other worlds of other worldviews, period. What if at the heart of it, it really is just about what if I'm wrong? And if I'm wrong, our entire world view, this entire world that I take for granted is destroyed. And that flings me into chaos. Not even necessarily destroyed, simply called into question. Simply called and into for question. A, I, and from my experience, and I, I can't say that this is true of every evangelical everywhere, but from my experience, one of the things that the evangelical church cannot handle is sustained doubt. Absolutely. You can come to a pastor with a question or come to a youth group with a question as long as it's kind of a you know like like a well I was doubting about this and they'll try to have a very you know formulated compact polished answer for you and then they want that to be the end of it but there cannot be these sort of sustained doubts these recurring questions that maybe will never be completely answered like that that is terrifying I feel like too we we when we do the when we want everything to be neat answers, like in like in evangelicalism, we miss this common thread in all religions that states that, that that's kind of the hope of all religions to me summed up is what you said about if all of this falls apart, we're flung into chaos. But to me, the, the, the undercurrent or the message underneath all religions is that on the other side of that void is not chaos it's the divine yeah well and and the interesting thing is i don't think i don't actually think that that's true of all religions i think that's largely true of say western systematic religion like i don't i don't see that impulse in say buddhism or even in paganism i don't see that i don't see those same impulses but i think i think in this case it's it's absolutely valid that you know 
in in these sort of Western and systematized religions. There is that fear, but beyond that fear are the mystics. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's people that know that in the midst of that chaos, you know what. You encounter God. You encounter God. In the midst of your darkness, Emmanuel comes. You brought up something that I want to hit on, Danielle. The difference between two kinds of doubt. Mm. There is, and and I know that we're kind of going off the path, but that's (laughs) fine. That's what's fun about these conversations. You said that in evangelical circles, there is acceptable doubt and unacceptable doubt. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. a really important thing to distinguish where I consider myself a doubt-filled believer. And I don't just mean doubt like, um, I, I don't I don't mean doubt and I think the... Apologetics kind of way? No, the apologetics <laughs> yeah. kind of way or in... The struggle kind of way? Or yeah. in a, it feel, or in almost the arbitrary way that that word is so often used. Doubting specific aspects of Doubting the faith? specific aspects of the faith. For Whereas for me, it is truly an ongoing, crushing, chronic experience, which feels like a chronic physical condition. It, the doubt that I experience within faith feels like chronic debilitating depression or chronic rheumatoid arthritis or some, you know, it is this ongoing thing. I, I don't think it's because I'm better or smarter than anyone else. I think it's just the makeup of my personality. And so I experienced doubt in this way. The church that, my experience is that the church can handle those occasional questions, but cannot handle the chronic doubt. It cannot handle the the never-ending chronic doubt. You know, I remember the first time that that doubt really entered my life, and it was when I was a sophomore in college, and I was about 22. I'm 29 now. It has not stopped, it has not gone away, and it's been pretty consistent for just about every single day. And be living in that place of having to confront what I think is the religious person's worst nightmare, which is what if I'm wrong? What if this entire thing is made up? What if there is truly nothing after we die? Confronting all of that, I think, gives me a lot of empathy for the the thoughtless and at times almost violent shutdown that churches go through, that the evangelical world goes through. Like, I get it. I understand it because it is truly that painful. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so when I read this statement, that that is what I see deeper than this is about all the things that they say it's about. You know, they say what's at stake. Bible translations are at stake. Our worship is at stake. The health of the church is at stake. The health of the home is at just on and on and on. But the unspoken thing, most importantly, that I think that's really at stake, the thing that they, that that is truly at stake for them that they may not even realize is what if my entire worldview is wrong and everything I believe to be true is wrong. That's what's actually at stake. And all of these points are just the false bandage. It's the false flag. It's what they say is it's mm-hmm. it's actually about when in fact it's about something deeper and more psychological. Yeah. I think it's a little more sin. I think my response as a minister is a little more cynical because I feel like the church does know how to handle it. We just refuse to. Uh, does know how to handle doubt? 
Yes, and mm. because I think it, I think we've always had the tools with like the mystics and everything to know that doubt in and of itself is a form of encounter with God. Absolutely. Oh, I, oh, yes. One yes. of one of the most honest encounters with God, at least in my experience. And, and that's what that's really what I've come to is that if God is simply the the foundations of the material universe that guide its its movements, or if God is truly a supernatural personal entity that exists within and beyond it. Either way, experiencing doubt is kind of the ultimate act of worship. Experiencing doubt is me saying, I'm not you. I'm not whatever. I'm not God. I am yeah. not the ultimate reality. I'm just a tiny part of this universe. And it's the doubt is is one of the most crushing and humbling experiences ever because it's really the experience of not being God. What else is worship, <laughs> if not that? Exactly, and you know that's it's you know doubt is not the pastoral disaster that it's been made out to be in the evangelical circles. There's this there's this uh, fear that you know if you take this one stone out of the foundation of faith then the whole building is going to come tumbling down and i think what i have found as i have either admitted that i'm wrong or or you know that i was wrong or simply dwelt with doubt is that the more i follow those threads the more i live with that doubt and i contemplate it and i sit with it and i let it be there the more the rest of it, the really important parts of the rest of it come into place, if that makes sense. Just take this example. As I've, you know, come to the realization that that I truly believe I was wrong about my unaffirming position on LGBTQ relationships, it has not caused everything else to crumble. It has caused everything else to grow stronger. The metaphor Absolutely. is not a building it's more like a forest it's so much more organic and multifaceted and living than the idea of a building like it's almost as though i was viewing my faith as a building and the doubt that crept in and tried to you know about lgbtq relationships was like a vine and yeah it crumbled my foundation so that a forest could grow and that the forest is actually what you want you want that living organic multifaceted vital thing not or, an unchanging edifice of stone or it's like a forest fire there you go where you know mm -hmm. forest fire comes in and wipes out some of the old trees but then what comes but then but then in the place. soil is enriched so that new trees can grow exactly mm -hmm. and yeah so basically what we're doing here is the kind of practicing the need to cast doubt in a positive light and i absolutely need that or else life is just unsustainable for me. And I think a lot of my listeners, well, I don't think I know that a lot of my listeners are in the same place. So when I read something like this, I see a community trying to gird itself against doubt. Yeah. I'm, I see a community trying to fortify itself against doubt. Which I think plays directly into the last statement. Into the last statement. statement. Okay, so we are now <laughs> yeah. on point six, which says the advance of the gospel is at stake. All right. 
Ephesians 5 calls husbands and wives to relate to one another as a picture of Christ and the church. The picture involves the humble, sacrificial leadership of the husband and the joyful, intelligent submission of that leadership by to that leadership by the wife. Husbands and wives who model this improperly portray a distorted and false picture of Jesus Christ, the head and savior of his bride, the church. Deviation from biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood hinders the advance of the gospel. First of all, we're completely ignoring the verse that says submit to one another in love. Exactly. Anywhere. There's so much here I'm suffering like a, <laughs> a circuit overload. Just, ah! <laughs> yeah, go Donald, go. Well, I mean, the thing is, the advance of the gospel The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't understand how husbands and wives have anything to do with that. Well, I mean, they're saying that Ephesians 5 is calling husbands and wives to essentially be a metaphor, to be a living metaphor for how Christ should and the church should relate to each other. (laughs) May I offer an insight? So, So several years ago on my previous blog, Sacred Tension, I wrote two articles. One was why the traditional view on homosexuality makes me uncomfortable. And that was, you know, my first post that went viral and everyone read it. And it was a big deal. Well, I wrote a, and, but this was when I was still kind of in conservative evangelical land. And I wrote an, a follow-up article called why the liberal view of homosexuality makes me uncomfortable. And basically what my argument was, now I don't hold to this anymore, but basically what my argument was that our creation myths have true implications for how we live our lives. And now I'm not going to say that this is in fact true. The archetypes that the kind of the platonic archetypes in the sky of creation and role and all of those things, though our view of those things actually shape how we live. And this was my argument. And so if we believe, you know, what if we believe that as in some creation myths, it was the result of a terrible war, you know, creation was the result of a terrible war and planet Earth is the dead carcass of a god and the his blood is the oceans and so on and so forth. Well, then wouldn't that actually have an effect on how we live our lives and our worldview and how we treat one another? Okay, so basically what I'm getting, what I'm, what I was getting at in this article is there's fear and I had this fear that if we alter the archetypal story, then we're going to alter something fundamental about the nature of reality. We're going to alter something fundamental in the DNA of the cosmos. And I don't believe that anymore, but that fear is so prevalent. And that's what I see going on here is that if we alter the archetype of Christ as husband, church as bride, and if we say that platonic archetype in the sky, if, if that doesn't reflect down on us and and kind of live itself out in this little microdrama and everything we do in home and church and life, etc., then reality is going to break down. I actually do think reality is going to break down. Their reality will break down. And I think the reason why they have that fear is because it's actually true of well, their own worldview. And that's the thing. But that's the thing. Humans have done this for as long as there have been humans. Exactly. This is simply what humans do. It won't bring about the eschaton. It'll just be another time that we told a different story and we did other things. Like this is and this okay. is what human beings do. It's okay. <laughs> and that's what I have found. But that's what I that's what I see in this is that if we let go of this archetype, if we let go of this myth, then all of reality 
reality is going to crumble because the inherent the, the foundational DNA of the cosmos has been corrupted. It's genuinely a faithless thing, isn't it? Because I'm the thing. One of the th- the words that's coming into my head while we're talking about this is that evangelicalism is basically theistic atheism because it's like at the depth of it all that we're getting at is this fundamental belief that if everything falls apart, there is nothing there to catch us. So that's why all of this has to be preserved, because really at the heart of it, if we get down to the deepest part of it, they're grasping at this because they do not really think, or there's a fundamental doubt there, that if they fall, there's not something there to catch them. If this worldview falls apart for them, then there's nothing beyond it that can offer them hope or meaning. Exactly. But that, and that is a faithless religion. To me, it doesn't necessarily doubt the existence of God. It doubts maybe the mercy of God. I think the idea is they're like, if we disobey in these ways, God won't forgive us. He won't. He'll cast us out. We'll all be damned. I'm like, God knows that we make mistakes. Your Our theology, my theology, everyone's theology, I am absolutely certain, is already riddled with mistakes. Exactly. We make mistakes all the time, and God knows it, and he will be there to catch us. If Christ died for our sins, he also died for our brains. He also died for our minds that are prone to error. And so this idea that we have to have right theology as a litmus test of being saved is bullshit. It is self-evidently contradictory if one believes in the person of Christ as told in the church tradition, you know, the three major traditions of Christianity for the past however many gazillion years. It's self-evidently contradictory where if we are saved by by faith, by faith, well, if we not not only that, if we're saved by Christ, by this external mediator mm-hmm. who reaches through our, who reaches past our fallenness, who reaches past our brokenness, there seems to be this lack of self-awareness about the fallenness of our own minds as well. It isn't just about action. It's also about worldview and ideas. And so to say that, you know, God can forgive a murderer but can't forgive someone who with all the best intentions, believes something wrong because that is the best evidence that that person has. And it's perfectly self-evident to them, and yet it turns out to be wrong. And let's face it, that happens to us all the time. If if Christ can't save that person, then that is not grace and that is not God. Mm-mm. And so there is this inherent contradiction in, in stuff like that, where if we say you have to adhere to this certain idea in order to be saved, well, that contradicts the very nature of Christianity, in my opinion, because it shows a lack of self-awareness about human sin, which God I mean, saved also, us from. I think it also shows a lack of awareness about how human beings interact with scripture and faith. It basically says... I am this I read the Bible this way. I'm not going to think about the what what all goes into my reading the Bible this way. My personal background, my worldview, my culture. I live in America in the 21st century and that that shapes how I read the Bible. There it's it's simply I read the Bible this way and that is therefore the only way. The only way to read this scripture is the way that I read it. And if you're not going to 
examine that or think about that mindfully, then yes, everyone else seems to be in bad faith when they don't fall in line with your reading of scripture. And therefore, yes, there is a danger that they might be, you know, cast out of of God's grace because the idea is, well, scripture is clear. Therefore, everyone who does not believe in my interpretation is just in bad faith and they're just being disobedient on purpose. <laughs> so that that to me is another another aspect of this whole, you know, the advance of the gospel and it's the inability to be aware of our own thoughts. Yeah. It's the inability to be aware of the reality that we perceive, which is generated by our individual brains. You know, conscious reality is not objective reality. It's what we are projecting. It's what our brains are simulating. And we tend to take that world for granted. We tend to take our individual worlds and ideas and thoughts totally for granted. And there, what I see in a lot of these conservative traditions is a total lack of self-awareness. And this, at, this to me gets at the difference between mysticism and unhealthy religion. I think unhealthy religion has a lack of self-awareness among other things, among many other things. Whereas I think mysticism, healthy mysticism has this level of self-awareness and has the, has the confidence to go beyond the body. Boxes. And like you say, like you said, Donald, to step beyond it and know that it'll still be okay. It's okay if I don't know everything. I don't know everything, and that's okay. I could be wrong, and that's okay. Yeah. And I think the overarching thing, and we've mentioned this in the Christmas podcast, and we mentioned it, I think, here too, is that at the end of it all, love is what we is the is the goal here. Mm. Absolutely. You know, and that's what we're to err on the side of, not to err on the side of fear. You know, if we're going to get mystical and metaphysical, there's really only two emotions. There's love and there's fear. Mm -hmm. And perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. If there's one thing the Bible says over and over and over and over again, it's fear not. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's that in this whole void, there's nothing to be afraid of because God period. And I just I just can't understand trying to form our faith around a fear-based system and expect it to be the redemptive proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Absolutely. Honestly, I am more terrified by the kind of scriptures where, you know, Jesus is talking at the end times and there are the sheep and the goats and he basically tells tells the goats you did not take good enough care of your fellow human beings. Depart from me. I did not. I never knew you. Yeah. yeah like exactly. that terrifies me so much more than any of, you know, than any fear that I might lose my salvation because I now affirm LGBTQ relationships. Like, you know, I don't know. It, I don't think I, and I can say this too. I don't think that I am ever, I don't think I have any danger before the judgment seat of God for, for loving somebody. Even even if that love is misplaced and to encourage other people to love one another and to love the people that they love and that a healthy and that health and mental stability and all of that good stuff comes out of those relationships, whether they be same sex or opposite sex relationships. I still feel much more confident standing before God, knowing that I promoted that than advocating what this statement advocates for. Absolutely. Let's talk about hindering the advance of the gospel. Yes, I, that was that was a, that got me <laughs> yeah, too. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what for me, you know, hinders my ability to connect with the gospel, and that's this 
that tenacious shit, clinging to power. This, shit like this. This tenacious clinging to power. This, you know, rigid, unmerciful, just power hungry bs it that for me hinders the gospel that is not the gospel of christ the ultimate hindering of the gospel is this looking at a woman looking at a gay person a transgender person any kind of minority group and saying this jesus this scripture is not talking to you Hmm. Mm, exactly and that is exactly what these statements are saying is that the bible speaks to men it speaks to it speaks to heterosexual men cisgendered men it speaks to a specific people only specific people can make it in this is not for you that is the ultimate hindrance of the gospel when jesus said go into all the world and preach the gospel jesus even further said you know why did the spirit of the lord even come upon me in the first place to to set the captives free to go to everybody it's the hint that they're the ones hindering the gospel because they are withholding it yes from the people who really need it as someone who is gay and i'm sure danielle as a woman we I, well i so resonate with that and so appreciate you saying that because that's been my lifelong experience. And so I've had the difficult experience of of having to kind of reframe everything myself. So because I knew that I was included in the kingdom of God against all evidence, despite all evidence to the contrary that was offered to me by by Christianity. Yeah, I appreciate well, you saying I would, that. I'll- well, let me go a little further because that, on that, as a minister, I would be amiss if I didn't talk directly to the listeners who are going through the same thing. For what it's worth, one little Western North Carolina Pentecostal preacher man <laughs> <laughs> can say, you know, is that to the LGBT community that's listening, to the trans community, to the to women, to minority groups, whoever listens, the gospel is talking to you. Absolutely. You know, it's not withheld from you. My language is your language, and my Jesus is your Jesus. Mm. And there's no qualifier. I put no qualifiers on that. I'm not going to say you have to stop being who you are, because quite frankly, I think God created you just the way you're supposed to be. And the and that's the gospel. Jesus come for you, just like he came for me. He didn't come for, you know, for the men, and then the men get to get to trickle it down to everybody else. <laughs> this is not the trickle-down gospel. <laughs> <laughs> trickle-down gospel. It's free. It's freely given, freely administered. Love has no, nobody has a monopoly on love. If God is love, every anybody who's capable of receiving or giving love is capable of receiving the gospel. Absolutely. Well, I think... That is the end of our show. Shall we conclude by pulling out the Ouija board and doing a seance? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> since we're all since we're all pagans and going to hell clearly okay well i do actually have an ouija board in my bedroom but it's on the wall and it's decorative. i know it's a little freaky <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot of freaky things on the wall in my bedroom all right well that's our show thank you so much for listening thank you danielle and donald for another fabulous conversation i hope we can do this again soon for those of you who like my work and want to support it please check out my website, sbradfordlong.com. You can find my dozens of articles there on faith, doubt, sexuality, and anything that strikes my fancy. I am also in the process of beefing up my Patreon, adding more rewards, trying to get more stuff 
up there for your benefit. So if you want to support my work in more financial ways, please do so. This show takes about five to 10 hours every week to record, produce, and edit, and post. And so I'm starting to look like a meth addict. All of that is on top of my regular full-time job, but I love what I do, and I'm not going to stop doing it, regardless of whether people are listening or paying me. But if you enjoy it, please consider supporting me. I also need to thank my team, Carson Green and Justin Kayla Bryan, for keeping me sane and helping me with the technical side of this show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks. The Artwork is by Justin Kayla Bryant, and I will see you next week.